Radio.fm. I am your host, Pam Benjamin, and I am here to bring you the news of what's going on in drugs today. What's going on in drugs today? We've got the Drug Policy Alliance Minute, but it's actually a half hour. Uh, but thanks to Melissa Moore out there working with drugpolicy.org. Changing drug policy in the United States. Super important, everybody. Harm reduction. It's all about harm reduction. And letting people out of jail who have had uh, previous sentences concerning marijuana, which, as we know, is a great drug, a helpful drug, a medicinal drug, and no longer something to be stigmatized and used to incarcerate people. Right? Let's let those people out. Nothing wrong with weed, my friends. Hey, Wednesday, September 14th, 2016. I will soon be joined by my co-host Latoya, the Sheriff of Truth Wind. She's dealing with a dog issue with one of her neighbors. I have no idea what that means. It could be slang for a bitch, (laughs) but I don't think so. I think there's actually a dog trap somewhere, which is sad. I feel terrible for our canine friend somewhere in the world. But it's time for the AltaCast. And uh, let's see what's happening this week in drugs. You guys are listening to Cope, artificial insemination in the fills, as always, every week. She is the Japanese Bjork. Just a lovely human being and very talented individual. And I like that trippy music, right? Wow! So uh, here's a roundup of some of the news this week. Again, this is from Drug Policy. Dot org. You guys can look that up to its Drug Policy Alliance. Please like them on Facebook and uh, learn about what they're doing to help you with drug policy. Uh, here we go. Uh, this is a press release about an event tomorrow in D.C. Please remember that there are four places now in the United States that are currently legal for marijuana for both uh, medicinal and recreational use. And that would be Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, yes, or the seat of our nation, not technically a state, more like a strange province, legal there. Also, Washington, Oregon, and Colorado, the first to do that. Uh, this is A press release from yesterday, September 13th, 2016. Thursday is a congressional briefing on diversity and inclusion in the cannabis industry. Yeah. Uh, uh. Um, I know that a lot of women are included in the cannabis industry. And a lot of people right now going up north to uh, trimmy, trim, 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 get that work done. Men and women. Some people say that women are better trimmers. Why? I don't know. But it is... uh, Something that goes on. I'm trying to decide if I want the music behind me or not. I'm going to say no. Uh, Industry speakers address lack of inclusion in burgeoning marijuana industry. People of color are most impacted by marijuana prohibition, but left out of legalization. Washington, D.C. On Thursday afternoon, speakers from the marijuana industry will address a Capitol Hill audience on the topic of diversity in the cannabis industry. With 25 states and the District of Columbia choosing to end cannabis prohibition in one form or another, The resulting legalized marketplace for its sale has currently been estimated at $7.1 billion. Woohoo! 
Despite the startling reality that people of color bear the brunt of the war on drugs, with 70 to 80 percent of arrests for cannabis possession happening in communities of color, it is estimated that under 1 percent of the growing legalized market is owned and or operated by individuals of color. The marijuana industry, the reform movement, and the policymakers need not only to ensure diversity and inclusion in the industry, but also eliminate structural barriers that stack the deck against communities of color, said Bill Piper, senior director of the Drug Policy. Policy Alliance's Office of National Affairs and moderator of Thursday's conversation. Marijuana legalization without racial justice risks being an extension of white privilege. This policy briefing will include remarks from some of the most successful minority owners in the cannabis industry from Washington, D.C. to Colorado to California. And the conversation will be shaped around their experiences operating in the market, potential solutions to address the disparity, and opportunities to use the cannabis industry as a vehicle to restore the harms caused by the war on drugs. It is clear the historical enforcement of cannabis prohibition has been overwhelmingly against people of color. And now we are seeing the systematic exclusion of people of color through the state procurement process for licensing its cannabis operators, said Dr. Malik Burnett, a physician at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. It's simply unequal treatment under the law by any other name. Minority cannabis operators from around the country are coming together to discuss how we can stop this discrimination and use the cannabis industry to create equity, economic justice, and restore communities most impacted by the failed war on drugs, he said. After the briefing, a reception featuring some of the most promising minority enterprisers, entrepreneurs, and investors in the cannabis industry will be held at Mason and Rook Hotel Rooftop Bar, 1430 Rhode Island Avenue, Northwest Washington, D.C., 20005 from 6 to 9 p.m. Complimentary open bar and food will be provided. Hey, everybody. If you're in Washington, D.C. and you're listening to this, please go to the Mason and Rook Hotel Rooftop Bar from 6 to, 8, 6 to 9 p.m. tomorrow night. Complimentary open bar and food. That is exciting. All right. But, uh, the... Room 2103 Rayburn House Office Building is where the Thursday, September 15th, 3 to 5, uh, will be happening, the uh, the talk. And then the reception to follow at Mason and Rook Hotel. Go to do, do that. Here are the hosts, Black Enterprise, District Growers, Drug Policy Alliance, Metropolitan Wellness Center, National Holistic Healing Center, Purple Heart Patient Center, and Simply Pure. All right. That's interesting. I You know, I never thought that I mean, I guess that's just a thing in America in any uh, new burgeoning, you know, like how, how many African-Americans do you know that are in the, you know, biotech or uh, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to see, especially if there's $7.1 billion that are going to be floating around for people to get, who's going to be getting that money? Boy, I hope I get some of it. I'll tell you what, if Proposition 46 goes legal, oh, I have a dream. Uh, I have a dream of... I'm a baker. I love to bake. I've been working with marijuana recipes and baking since I think my first recipe was published in 1993 in the Koala newspaper, which is part of UCSD's comedy newspaper. It was actually one of the first things I ever got published was my, which is funny, actually, and pretty amazing and awesome. And it's a terrible recipe, by the way. I recommend using margarine, which is dumb. Don't ever, Mike, never use margarine. Butter, butter only. And at the time, I didn't know enough about baking. I didn't know about the milk solids um, in butter, butter making cookies and whatnot. 
I've, I've been, see, 93, it's 2016. So I've been working with marijuana uh, in baked goods for 23 years. And I know what's up! Right now I've been using a lot of marshmallow because it's kind of the easiest and quickest thing to do. Also, they taste really good, uh, especially when you dip them in chocolate. And I have a new secret, too, of what I'm doing when I make them. I'm not going to tell you. This. I will tell you what the secret is. After I make my marshmallow butter goo, then I put my, you know, I mix it all around with it. And then I put my cereal in. And then I take tiny marshmallows or I chop up big marshmallows and I fold them in. So they don't completely melt, but they give it an extra fluff, uh, more sugar, and then they make them not like little bricks. And then I dip them in semi-sweet chocolate, 43% cacao, not 63, too much, too much. 43% is great because it just kills that weed flavor just a bit. I also like to use coffee as a mask for uh, flavor in weed. If you're making any cupcakes, make a chocolate cake with weed in it, add a little bit of espresso, powdered espresso, and it just somehow counteracts that flavor. I'm a genius. Uh, anyways, <laughs> so you guys are listening to the AltaCast. We're on the drug policy minute, the news from the forefront, thanks to Melissa Moore of Drug Policy Alliance. All right. Oh, since we were just talking about uh, treats, federal crackdown on drug, some say treats opioid addiction, faces backlash. Not treats, just it was treats in a different way. Uh, critics call DEA's new regulations on kratom, plant botanically related to coffee, reversion back to drug war policy making. Oh my goodness. Uh, capsules of the drug Kratom, recently labeled by the DEA as Schedule One drug under the Controlled Substances Act, prompting outcry from users who say it helps for everything from PTSD to menstrual cramps. Hold on just a sec. I'm just getting over this sickness, and it's still inside me. Uh, here we go. When drug U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency (DEA) boo announced last week that it intended to impose its strictest regulations on a drug that make that many claim help treat many claim can help treat opioid addiction, the public outcry was immediate. This is also from The Guardian. Just to let you guys know. It is out of the blue, said Susan Ash, the founder of the American Kratom Association. At the end of August, the DEA announced its intention to define Kratom, a Southeast Asian plant, uh, and its active chemical components as a Schedule One drug under the Controlled Substances Act, along with cannabis, heroin, and other drugs that are deemed to have high potential for abuse and no recognized medical use. How about put salvia on that list? Uh, I'm hearing people... Uh, that are terrified, literally scared to death of going back to old ways of life, whether it means living in chronic pain when nothing else has worked for them, dealing with PTSD, listening to all the people fearful that they're going to go back on their either prescribed or illicit opiates and possibly could die, said Ash. It's very emotional. Russ Bayer of the DEA said the agency made the determination after a review of some scientific and medical literature out in the world that Kratom poses such an imminent threat. Sorry, I used a silly voice because this guy's an idiot, right? Kratom 
which is botanically related to coffee, is currently not regulated at all and can be obtained through any number of companies on the internet or at health food or smoke shops. Some users say they would like it to be more strictly regulated so they could be sure they're actually getting the plant and not other chemicals. But they think it is ridiculous to say that it has no currently accepted medical usage. Advocates say the drug has prevented countless opioid-related deaths, but the fact that it activates opioid receptors has caused the DEA to miscategorize the active compounds, mitragynine and 7-hydroxamitagynine, as opioids. They know it's not an opioid, and yet they call it an opioid because they knew they would get congressional support from all the Congress people who are dealing with opioid epidemics in their own states. If you guys have been listening, this is the fourth uh, drug policy alliance update we've had and last week we talked about uh, states that legalized marijuana for medicinal use they've had a 25 percent decrease in opioid overdoses so we're already starting to see at least the anecdotal facts come through that there are other drugs but but why 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 would we why would we but you know what what's with the opioids what what what's going on there oh you mean pharmaceutical companies are making tons of money on opioids and keeping people on them and keeping them unhealthy no they wouldn't do that for money they wouldn't sacrifice people's health for money what they wouldn't do that <laughs> let's get back to this article um people who also use it recreationally to treat or to treat pain. Users say it helps everything from PTSD to menstrual cramps. In small doses, many people say Kratom has a stimulant effect, and even as the opiate effect increases with the dosage, many users manage it in such a way that it helps them get through the workday instead of sending them out on the nod. Marion Winnick, a Baltimore-based writer and professor, says she uses one spoonful early in the day, like tea, for work and doesn't need to use it again. Others say they take it throughout the day. The DEA cites 660 emergency room calls over the last five years and 15 deaths related to Kratom over the last two. But advocates insist that in all those deaths, there were other chemicals involved. There have been no direct deaths tied to Kratom, Ash said, and we've had an expert toxologist review reports to conclude that you cannot attribute Kratom solely as the cause of death for anyone, anywhere. One 2008 study found that subjects who took Kratom suffered seizure-like symptoms only after mixing it with another drug, modifinil, and found that it could mitigate opioid withdrawal. Ash, a lobbyist, founded the American Kratom Association after the substance helped her beat an opioid addiction that started with a narcotics prescription. And after she went through a rehabilitation program, Ash says, a doctor said she would have to take Subtrex or Suboxone, pharmaceuticals often used to treat opioid addiction, for the rest of her life. But those drugs are also narcotics. And Ash realized I was repeating the same old addict patterns with the Subtex, with the Subutex, Subutex. She had used Kratom to combat withdrawals when she feared running out of her monthly prescriptions. So she tried it again two years ago. And literally within a two-week period of time, I was up and around and productive and so passionate about this that I started the organization. Whereas the last few years of my life have been largely bedridden, and before I was leaving the house only to see doctors, now I'm flying across the country advocating for this plant. The DEA acknowledges the public outcry, which resulted in a We the People petition to the White House that quickly gained 100,000 signatures. Bayer of the DEA said he received many calls from people who said they have used Kratom to treat their opioid addiction 
or I've had chronic pain with the exception of the last year while I've been taking Kratom. I've had anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm a U.S. military veteran, except when I've taken Kratom over the last several months. So we get that, Bear said. Jag Davies of the Drug Policy Alliance called the DEA's decision a reversion back to drug war policymaking. It's really shocking that despite all the progress that's been made towards treating drugs as a health issue instead of a criminal justice issue, that the politicians and policymakers go with knee-jerk prohibition, said Davies. Kratom is suffering the same fate as other medical plants that have been used for millennia, and that there is no incentive for pharmaceutical companies to spend millions of dollars on research to get FDA approval. There's no good reason for people who are using Kratom to be treated as criminals. It's fairly unlikely that the DEA is going to change its mind because it never does. They're robots when it comes to prohibition, Davies said. Albert Garcia Rameau, who was beginning research to conduct a Kratom study at Johns Hopkins University, said the temporary scheduling is structured to create the conditions for keeping it illegal. There will be likely a surge in adulterated Kratom-like products being sold on the black market and corresponding increase in poisonings and ER visits attributed to Kratom which will then solidify their stance to keep it schedule one. Oh, goodness. It's like a setup. It's like we're playing volleyball and they're setting it up and they're waiting for the spike. They're like, here we go. Let's make it legal so that people will have problems with it. Oh, now it's going to stay illegal. <laughs> Never mind the medicinal value. It's a Southeast Asian plant. I mean, I guess cocaine's a plant too, but you have to... I mean, coca leaves, coca tea. I don't think that should be illegal. Um, Gloria, she was such a lovely little human being. Um, she used to work with me back in my Ethan Allen days. And she went to Columbia, I guess. She used to be back in the day, and she showed me pictures. She was amazing. She was a, a stewardess. A, you know, whack when they called them stewardesses, and they were. she was like model gorgeous. Anyways, I think she flew for Pan Am or something. But she's traveled all over the world. So she came back from Colombia or South America or something, and she gave me this coca tea, and she's like, ugh, it's just too much for me. I can't take it. That stuff was amazing. It was like drinking four cups of coffee, but there was no come down, and I felt great. I felt great for about three hours. And I didn't necessarily want another cup because I knew it wasn't going to last forever, right? I to keep that stuff, keep it secret, keep it safe. But um, I guess... So coca leaves are a plant, and marijuana is a plant, and kratom is a plant, and yet, you know, th there, there's some collusion between the DEA and the pharmaceutical agencies and, you know, pharmaceutical companies to make certain things illegal so that they can continue thriving off of opioid and synthetically made drugs. It's sad. I mean, and, and it's another one of those things that, are we too stupid to see through it, or, or are we just... American people we're just are we just dumb it looks like people are fighting things so that's good um, you guys if you want to learn how to fight go uh, to Drug Policy Alliance like them on Facebook Drug Policy Alliance drugpolicy.org uh, they're providing us the hot off the presses drug policy minute which is like a half hour alright so um, this is a piece written by Deanna King on the medical marijuana and professional sports, especially in football. Hey, it's football season, everybody. Uh, yeah. uh, my wonderful boyfriend, Jonathan Moore, has a fantasy football team, which means 
<sighs> I have to do something else with my Sundays in the fall. I should probably start going back to the punchline again, but ugh. I just hate... I watch so much comedy all week long. I just don't want to sit through another two-hour show, you know? All right. The price of pain in the NFL and how marijuana can help. September 7th, 2016 by Deanna King. As football season kicks off, full of glory and pain for players, I'm recalling an interview with Jerome the Bus Bettis, the heart of the Steelers Super Bowl uh, XL winning team. That would be 20, 30. Um, as he was on the cusp of retirement and embracing the introspection that comes with the end of a storied career. Bettis was vocal about his commitment to the game and candid about the physical sacrifices he made to play at a high level for 13 seasons. The profile intended to capture the magnitude and importance of his last game at Super Bowl XL, but what I recall most is Bettis's morning routine and his agony simply getting out of bed. Bettis recounted that sometimes he can't even walk down the stairs in his house. Instead, he opts to sit on the top step and slides down each subsequent step on his butt. Eleven years later, that memory stays with me, and I am reminded of it every time I come to witness a gruesome hit that elicits both gasps and applause from the crowd, and it comes to mind every time I read about an athlete being suspended for marijuana use. Recently, a spate of athletes have come under fire using marijuana as a pain reliever, despite clinical research showing marijuana and its derivatives can aid in the treatment of chronic pain. Like the debilitating pain that many current and retired football players and other athletes live with, and the establishment of medical marijuana programs across the country. However, the National Football League NFL considers marijuana a banned substance, and current players must contend with the league's policy and program on substances of abuse, which tests, evaluates, treats, and monitors players for use of such substances. Players who test positive for marijuana are sent to stage one of a multi-tiered intervention program in which a medical doctor, medical director decides whether the player would benefit from a clinical intervention and or treatment. Repeat violations post-intervention can lead to two-week, four-week, four-game, ten-game, and year-long suspensions. Since 2011, 104 players have been suspended for a drug-related offense, and in 2016 alone, 21 players have been suspended from the NFL for marijuana use. Although two dozen states now allow use in some forms of some forms of marijuana, the NFL has yet to change its position, drawing deserved scrutiny from players and sports analysts. The league's unyielding position on the use of recreational and medicinal marijuana adversely impacts players' long- and short-term earning potential and limits the ways players can manage their chronic pain, which affects nearly 9 out of 10 players, according to the Washington Post survey. Further, it flies in the face of the breadth of evidence showing that marijuana and cannabinoids can be used as healthy alternative to opioids in the treatment of chronic pain. It seems hypocritical that while NFL monitors use of illicit substances, players freely use prescription opioids and receive shots of Toradol and Vicodin to remain functional through their intense pain, even though some of those substances might not be the most helpful option due to the risk for misuse over regular and long-term use, plus other detrimental health consequences. In a study of former NFL players, a team of researchers at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis found that more than half of the league's veterans had taken narcotics during their playing days, and even more than a third were using them habitually in retirement. The study also found that almost three-quarters of a cohort 
three quarters of that cohort had misused the drugs, taken them longer and in greater amounts than suggested, and the majority, 63%, received their drugs from a non-medical source, like a trainer, instead of the team doctor. Given the population of 18,000 current NFL retirees, that means that at least 3,000 are taking narcotics, and at least 1,500 suffer from pain pill dependence that compounds their chronic conditions. Considering the ample research showing a decrease in opiate overdoses in the states with medical marijuana programs, it's time for the NFL to reconsider its stringent marijuana policy and allow players to use marijuana to relieve pain. I am one of the many Americans waiting for the start of the football season, and I will be watching every game and cheering for big hits, managing my feelings of guilt, and hoping the players don't withstand season-ending injuries. I respect any athlete's choice to play a sport where physical violence is perpetual and and injury is inevitable. I also want players to be able to enjoy life post-retirement. The NFL should craft policies that will benefit its players after they've left the field. Do it for the bus. Uh, Deanna King is a policy coordinator for the Drug Policy Alliance based in New York. That's an interesting story. Thanks, Drug Policy Alliance. Seriously, that's really cool. Uh, and people love uh, people love NFL. They also love marijuana. I love... God, I love marijuana. It's, it's so good, it almost makes me able to watch football, which I don't really like. All right, so we talked about Kratom, and uh, here, oh, here's another one on Kratom. I should have read the two Kratom at the same time, but that might have been overkill, right? So uh, first we talked about inclusion in the marijuana industry, then Kratom, the NFL, how it can help, and now uh, more on Kratom. This is from the Huffington Post. The DEA is rushing to criminalize another herb, and Congress is silent. If the war on drugs is a failure... Why are lawmakers sitting idly by as the DEA launches a ban on Kratom? K-R-A-T-O-M. Hold on, I'm going to cough again. Sorry, you guys. Pulling back the veil. Pulling back the veil for you guys here at MutinyRadio.fm. This is the AltaCast. We're in the middle of the Drug Policy Alliance Minute. More than a minute. Uh, nearly half a century into the war on drugs, Americans and their congressional representative finally seem comfortable challenging the nation's long-standing enforcement-first drug policy, except for when it matters. With very little to show for the more than $1 trillion spent and millions of lives lost or permanently scarred in the fight for prohibition, lawmakers have begun to push broadly for reform, emphasizing treatment, destigmatization, decriminalization, and even legalization over t- tactics like incarceration and other punitive responses. Yay. But Congress has been silent in the face of an abrupt move by the Drug Enforcement Administration last week to expand the war, drug war by banning and criminalizing an herbal supplement called Kratom. I'm going to go back. It's $1 trillion has been spent on the war on drugs, and we have very little to show for it, except a lot of people in jail. Uh In a notice published by the Federal Register August 31st, the DEA announced that it is placing two active ingredients in the herb made from the leaves of the Mitragyna speciosa, a Southeast Asian tree related to coffee, into Schedule 1 under the Controlled Substances Act. Drugs in this category are considered to have no known medical benefit and a high potential for abuse. Substances classified as Schedule 1 include heroin, LSD, and most controversially, marijuana. The emergency scheduling move on Kratom is set to go into effect as early as the end of September. 
at which point it will enact a two-year ban that the federal government can make permanent. LSD is Schedule 1. That's interesting. I, I think it has health, uh, mental health benefits, LSD. I wouldn't say that it has no known medical benefit because mental health is definitely part of medicine. And I don't think, I don't know anybody that abuses LSD. Who wants to trip that much? The sudden move to ban Kratom makes a mockery of the federal government's claims to be concerned about the suffering unleashed by the opioid epidemic. The DEA's attack on another naturally occurring substance attracted immediate pushback from Kratom supporters and drug policy experts who reject the agency's claim that the herb is an imminent hazard to public safety. Kratom users say the DEA ignored anecdotal evidence and emerging science that suggests the drug could be promising treatment for a variety of ailments, including chronic pain and opioid addiction. Kratom contains alkaloids that appear to activate opioid receptors in the brain and reduce pain. And although most opioids have sedative qualities, low to moderate doses of Kratom actually serve as a mild stimulant. And all of this has made it popular traditional medicine for millennia in Asia and more recently in the West. The sudden move to ban Kratom makes a mockery of the federal government's claim to be concerned about the suffering unleashed by the opioid epidemic. The White House and members of Congress have been vocal about encouraging doctors to prescribe fewer opiates, but the DEA is banning an herbal alternative that can help do just that, presumably much to the pleasure of pharmaceutical companies, which would be glad to see the demise of an affordable competitor. A number of drug policy reform advocates have called out the federal government for once again rushing toward prohibition, a strategy that has repeatedly proven more harmful than helpful, but congressional lawmakers have yet to say anything about the escalation of the drug war. Although DEA has the authority to enact this emergency policy, Congress could use its upcoming spending bill to block it from doing so. But the political will would have to be there. The Huffington Post reached out to Congress, Congress's most progressive voices on drug policy, for the comment on the Kratom ban. Some declined to comment. Others didn't respond at all. The group includes dozens of members, including Senator Bernie Sanders, Senator Elizabeth Warren, um, Representative Justin Amash, and Repub Representative Dana Rohrabacher, all who have been vocal supporters of reforming marijuana laws. Since relatively few Americans use Kratom, it's not clear if these lawmakers are entirely aware of what's going on. There's not been a substantial or overwhelming interest from our Congressional Affairs counterparts, and we are on the eve of pre-election campaigning, and members of Congress just came back this week, Russ Bayer told a spokesman for the DEA. A spokesman for the DEA told HuffPost, we suspect there will be an ongoing dialogue in terms of educated members of Congress regarding our intents to schedule Kratom. But... With potentially just three weeks left until scheduling change for Kratom takes effect, the DEA's actions have so far been subject to minimal oversight. The agency didn't ask for public comment ahead of its announcement, and the founder of one of the nation's largest Kratom advocacy group told HuffPost she didn't hear the news till she read it online last week. A petition asking the White House not to schedule Kratom reached 113,000 signatures on Saturday, crossing the 100,000 threshold that requires a response from the administration. One watchdog is now questioning how the ban materialized in a letter published Thursday. The Center for Regulatory Effectiveness, a for-profit think tank that has been a persistent thorn in the side of government regulators, asked the DEA for a copy of the administrator's correspondence with the Department of Health and Human Services. The DEA says it, ref it informed HHS of its plan to ban Kratom in May and that the assistant secretary of HHS didn't object. The center wants to make sure the process complied with the Data Quality Act 
a controversial statute that requires federal regulatory actions to be based on quality data. The lack of scrutiny over this action is troubling, especially considering the widespread implications of a DEA offensive against thousands of Americans who are already using Kratom for treatment, as well as manufacturers and distributors in the U.S. and abroad. Furthermore, critics are concerned that the agency used isolated reports to make a series of inaccurate and alarmist claims about Kratom, while simultaneously ignoring emerging science that suggests that the herb could have a variety of medical benefits. Congress has oversight over the DEA and has the responsibility to question the agency and its actions, said Grant Smith, a deputy director of National Affairs for Drug Policy Alliance, a non-profit that advocates for progressive reform of drug laws. In this case, we have a lot of anecdotal evidence that Kratom is therapeutic potential, yet the DEA is intending to put this in Schedule 1, which is designated for compounds that have no medical value. Smith continued, it is also a schedule that is reserved for drugs with a high potential for abuse, yet the research I've seen doesn't cooperate that. Indeed, while initial studies have found that Kratom could have some addictive potential, they have pointed to possible medicinal applications as well. Most scientific literature has also noted that the plant has a low potential for abuse or acute harm, such as overdose. Walter Prozelek a professor of pharmacology at Midwestern University who wrote a comprehensive literature review on Kratom for the Journal of American Osteopathic Association, previously told HuffPost that he found Kratom doesn't produce much of a psychoactive high when taken in low or moderate doses. This means, he said, it doesn't appear to have particularly high potential for recreational use. Other scientists are more, people want to get high. Yeah. Other scientists are more optimistic about how Kratom interacts with the human body. Andrew Krugel, a researcher at Columbia University has been examining the chemistry of the active alkaloids in Kratom and earlier this year published a study with some fascinating findings. Here's how Eric Boudman explained Kugel's results in a recent article for the medical news site STAT. When an opioid binds to a receptor, it can trigger a few different responses in a cell. One is thought to be responsible for causing pain relief. Another is thought to be responsible for negative side effects, such as respiratory depression, which is responsible for many opioid deaths. Standard opioids, such as morphine, oxycodone, and fentanyl, set both of these protein cascades into motion. By using fluorescent molecules to watch the proteins in action, Kugel's team could see the main components of Kratom mostly stimulated the pain-killing response, but did not have much of an effect on the proteins that caused the side effects. It is with this in mind that Krugel and a number of his colleagues in the medical field wrote a letter to the government officials last week expressing grave concern over the DEA's plan to ban the active substances in Kratom. The doctors say these alkaloids could lead to the development of safer alternative pain medications that could help address a nationwide opioid epidemic, largely fueled by narcotic painkillers. Furthermore, they claim to have seen little evidence to support the DEA's dire warnings about Kratom's dangers. Hundreds of years of human use worldwide suggest, further suggest, albeit in anecdotal manner, that Kratom is typically safe, with no substantiated fatal overdoses from Kratom plant consumption alone. In contrast to uh, more than 18,000 deaths per year from prescription opioids and more than 10,000 from heroin, they write. This directly challenges the DEA's description of Kratom as an urgent public health threat, a conclusion that relies heavily 
on a recent report by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The CDC study published in July found that 660 calls involving Kratom were made to the U.S. poison centers in the six years from January 2010 to December 2015. It also found evidence of 555 positive drug test results for Kratom in December 2014 through March 2016. Although the DEA claims that a sharp upward trend over this period shows growing abuse and popularity of these substances, these incidents make up just a tiny portion of the more than 3 million annual calls to poison centers and the millions of drug tests the CDC surveyed over that period. For comparison, poison centers get tens of thousands of calls each year regarding exposure to laundry detergent packets, glow sticks, and other plant matter, like uh, poinsettias are... Uh, really poisonous. In 2014, about 57% of all poison center cases involved pharmaceuticals. The CDC reclined, declined a request for further comment in the study. The DEA also claims that there have been num numerous deaths associated with Kratom, but fails to provide an example in which the herb was found to be the only contributor. Such a case does not appear to exist. Most deaths associated with Kratom have involved people who reportedly test positive for numerous substances or who were suffering from pre-existing medical conditions. Users report that consuming too much Kratom will only lead to nausea and vomiting. Despite the relatively low-risk profile, many advocates say that, like the DEA, are worried about emerging brands of gas station Kratom, often brightly marked products with stupid names that may be deceptively labeled or contain unlisted adulterants. Before the DEA announced the ban, Kratom groups were regularly speaking out in support of regulatory efforts to rein in unscrupulous manufacturers and restrict use by young consumers. The federal government's move will put an end to such efforts as nuanced regulation. In its notice, the DEA states that Kratom does not have an approved medical use in the United States and has not been studied as a treatment agent. But that's pretty much true of all the herbal supplements sold in the United States. Obtaining official medical approval from the Food and Drug Administration is a lengthy and painstaking process that can cost pharmaceutical companies billions of dollars. And Big Pharma has little incentive to seek approval for plants like Kratom, as corporations can't exactly patent leaves and naturally occurring compounds that have been around for millions of years. None of this is to say that we don't need further research to get a more complete understanding of the potential health benefits or consequences of taking Kratom. In fact, there appears to be a consensus from people on all sides of that issue. In the absence of rigorous scientific peer-reviewed clinical studies, the DEA is obligated to protect the public and schedule the substance, said Bayer, the agency spokesman. Of course, as scientists like Krugel have argued, placing Kratom in Schedule 1 is likely to seriously kneecap that undertaking. There are also unanswered questions about the, how the drug enforcement apparatus will approach a newly criminalized drug. Federal penalties for possession, distribution, or manufacture of a Schedule One controlled substance are likely to go into effect almost immediately following the change. This could have broader effects on the criminal justice system as thousands of Americans will soon be forced to make painful and difficult choices. Many people who use Kratom are suffering from chronic pain and turn to the herb after experiencing negative side effects from prescription opioids, often including addiction. Now they'll have to decide if they want to continue using Kratom and risk severe legal consequences. Some may turn back to the painkillers that previously left them addicted or debilitated, and others may attempt to forego treatment altogether. Whatever happens, says Grant Smith, a Congress will need to play an active role in this decision. After all, Congress gave the DEA the power to make emergency scheduling decisions and later enhanced that authority as part of a legislation meant to address a spate 
of emerging synthetic drugs. All right, we're back. That is the end of the drug hour. The drug 40 minutes. It keeps getting longer, but it's great. I love it. I'm so glad that um, Melissa Moore is sending us the news hot off the presses of what's happening at Drug Policy Alliance. Please go check them out at drugpolicyalliance.org. And also, like them on Facebook. Uh, They are the Drug Policy Alliance. Helping you, seriously, with all your drugs. (laughs) Uh, I had never heard about Kratom, and now... And now here we go. Now I know. Um, We're going to take a little break. Hopefully LaToya, the Sheriff of Truth, will be around. And uh, we're going to be back. Hey, something exciting is happening here at 2 o'clock. There is a uh, new, uh, brand new show here at Mutiny Radio. It's on Wednesdays following the AltaCast. It's from uh, 2 to 4 p.m. And it is hosted by yours truly and also by Timothy Pizza, who goes under the moniker Pervert Fervor. So the first, uh, the first hour is of Some Call Me Tim uh, is about... How people relate to the higher power, the divine God, all that kind of stuff. And the second hour is pervert fervor, playing you the beepity boops and the boppity beeps on the moogs and the, all the fun things he has. He has all these electronic toys that he sets up and he plays lots and lots of music. Um, we're going to play a little music and we'll be right back with more AltaCast. Uh, this is Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard. It's all going to pot, thank God.
good music here from Bob Marley.
right now to Drug Policy Alliance and like them on Facebook. Uh, we have a little bit more from Willy Weed Store. War on weed is almost over. And Willy is winning. Now he's a free Willy Selling Willy Weed Try you a sample or buy you ample He's got the world's best pot Before too long you can get your buds or bong From your local willy weed store Private reserve, that is And you can tell your mama to blame it on Obama For making it easy as it is like alcohol brewed in Wichita Just keep it away from the kids Cause he's a free Willie Selling Willie weed Try you a sample or buy you ample He's got the world's best pot 
party fun Bide by the ton from your local Willie Weed store you have aches and pains, stresses and strains, it's great medicine. It's no lie, people been getting high for thousands of years and then. Now he's a free Willie, selling Willie weed. Try yourself a sample or buy you ample. He's got the world's best pot. Come on, come on, have yourself a ball at your local Willie Weed store. If smoking ain't your thing, you want to feel that zing, there treats to eat. Willie's and he makes delicious candy at prices you just can't beat. Now there's a free Selling Willie Try yourself a sample or buy you ample He's got the world's best pot Before too long you can get your buds or bong From your local Willie Weed store are listening to the AltaCast here on Mutiny Radio. We're listening to some lovely pot songs. That's a lot of fun. Uh, just finished our Drug Policy Alliance. We're going to get to some more stuff going on here after this music.
smoke me when I die. Thank you, Willie Nelson. Very nice, Willie. I appreciate you and all of your singings. All right. We're back here. Multicast on Mutiny Radio. Looks like the Latoya, the Sheriff of Truth, is not going to make it due to her dog issues. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm just making things up. Uh, hey, guys. Looking for things to do this weekend? This is a great weekend for comedy. Uh, There's a bunch of different things going on, one of them being Comedy Day. Uh, That's free. It's in the park on Sunday, which is awesome. Uh, But this is what's happening. The SF Improv Festival presents Speechless Marathon, 24 hours, 144 presentations, no sleep. I'm part of this. Uh, Hello and thanks for being a part of our first ever Speechless Marathon. This is a true community effort, and we couldn't have done it without your participation. While being a strange experiment, we are also attempting to bring together the comedy community, raise money for the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and maybe break a world record while we're at it. Please read the entire email, including the fun facts about the event at the bottom of the page. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, so my show is 9 a.m. on Sunday, 9-18. So that's on Comedy Day itself at 9 a.m. All right. Uh, so go. It's at the Here Collective at 9.30 Alabama Street in San Francisco. That's where we are. Uh, The SF Improv Festival. We get to be a part of the festival, which is awesome. Um, We will be delivering a PowerPoint presentation without any knowledge of slides or topic. Each hour, the host will explain the theme of the hour, if there is one, and how it works, and then call us up one at a time. You'll spin a virtual wheel, and it will land on a topic. Topics will vary, but the past have included TED Talks, Startup Pitch, Sermon, First Contact with Aliens, Self-Help Seminar, Lifetime Achievement Award, etc. And then once your topic is randomly picked, the host will get a specific title for your talk from the audience. Example, for your startup pitch, what is an app that doesn't exist but should? The Boyfriend Eraser. We advise setting up the slide to something very large and almost undeliverable before clicking to it. I came up with an idea to change the world, and it looks like this. And each deck will contain six slides with a red dot on the next to last slide, so you'll know when you're almost done. Wow, this is going to be fun. Uh, So the event starts at 8 p.m. on Saturday, September 17th, and ends at 8 p.m. on Saturday, September, uh, Sunday, September 18th. Uh, Hey, guys. So... Uh, join us at the Speechless Marathon this weekend for a chance to set a world record and make a comedy PowerPoint history. Get your tickets at Speechless Marathon. Uh, not only can you watch some of the best comedians in the Bay Area this weekend at the Speechless Marathon, but you can register to vote thanks to the team behind the new app, November. Get your tickets here. Speechless is raffling off a Fitbit charge. Uh, 
HR every four hours to audience members at on 918 at 12 a.m., 4 a.m., 8 a.m., 12 p.m., 4 p.m., and 8 p.m. Postmates is offering free delivery to audience members anytime during the 24-hour marathon. Lyft is offering 20% off two rides here with the code Funnier Together. And November, a register registration app, a register app, will be launching at the Speechless Marathon. Doze SF will be providing one of their amazing nap pods for audience members who need to recharge. Uh, Alight designers will be providing camping gear to those sleepy Speechless fans that want to rough it more than recharge. Adobe will team up with Speechless for a special hour show called Slideless, where funny Photoshop images are made live on stage and incorporated into the marathon. Soma Street Food Park will be sending food trucks for dinner on Saturday, September 17th, and brunch and dinner on Sunday, September 18th. And Handley Sellers will be providing wine for audience members throughout the marathon. Yay! I hope you guys are going to go to this. Um, Find them on Facebook. It's called the Speechless Marathon. And uh, I have it attached on uh, to the AltaCast uh, as well, and it'll be on the Mutiny Radio page. So please join us at the Speechless Marathon, 24 hours, 144 presentations. No sleep! This weekend. I'm excited to be a part of that. Uh, sweet. Hey guys, you're listening to the AltaCast right now here on MutinyRadio.fm. I'm usually joined by my wonderful and fantastic co-host Latoya the Sheriff of Truthwind. She is not here today yet, but she might be. Uh, coming up at 2 o'clock, we've got Some Call Me Tube with Timothy Pizza, a.k.a. Pervert Fervor, myself, and today's special guest, Matthew Quirk. He still wears roller skates. Something's going on with that. We're going to talk about it. Some Call Me Tim is my new podcast where we talk about religion, the divine, your connection or disconnection to and from it. Uh, whether you believe in religion of a specific kind. I was raised super Christian, so it informs so much of my life, unfortunately. Uh, but we're going to find out what informs other people's lives on Some Call Me Tim. Also, this Friday on Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse, the Stranger Things continue in September. Uh, this week is My Strange X location. People that lived in other places. And we've got Zach Wiseman on that show. He used to live in a cardboard box. No, actually, he was homeless for a while. That's interesting. But he was also in Las Vegas, which I think is interesting. So we'll find out all about that comedy this Friday. Yeah. All right. AltaCast. With, without LaToya, I'm, I'm like, I'm not sure where to go. So when that happens, we go right back to music because... It's soothes the savage soul and the beast. Uh, I've been reading. Let's talk about my Stephen King thing. Some of you guys know me. If you listen to this, why else would you listen to this? But uh, I am attempting to get through Stephen King's entire canon before December, and I put in a lot of time this week on eleven twenty two sixty three, his uh, book about the Kennedy assassination and his sort of reimagining. Uh, it's time traveling and it's really wonderful anyways I'm almost done I'm like within the last 50 pages and it's a 700 page book and I started it when did I go to the library when did I pick it up I think last Friday so I am today is Wednesday so I'm jamming through you know a 700 page book in less than a week I read a lot 
I was sick this week too, so it was nice. I just did a lot of reading. Uh, but I'm telling you, S Stephen King, man, he is the best writer of all time. And he's the most entertaining person, I think, in the history of the universe. Uh, some people like George R. R. Martin, and I, I mean, I've, I've never really been a huge George R. R. Martin fan. I'm a big Robert Jordan fan, but he's dead. And then Brandon Sanderson, who took over the Wheel of Time books, but wow, do I like Stephen King better. He writes in so many different modes, and uh, I'm writing a syllabus right now because I want to eventually teach. I have an MFA and a master's degree, whatever, and I want to eventually teach in college at some point, and it would be a really fun course, which is... Um, Stephen King is the best writer ever. Actually, the course I would want to teach is I love reading because I feel like the lack of readers is disturbing that people don't read anymore. I've always read. I've always been a big reader and I kind of pride myself on that. And it's one of the reasons that my diction is when I read, I love reading those news articles because it's a cold read, which means I've never read them before. And I try to read them with clarity and good diction and understanding and all of my ability to read out loud has come from my excessive reading since I was a child. I love reading. Superhero book person. Anyways, I feel like people don't read enough anymore, and, and reading in a book is different than... Oh, excuse me. Reading from a book is different than reading from a screen. I think it makes a big, big difference. Um... Let us listen to um, We're going to listen to some Stephen King Him being just awesome So We'll start with uh, a little of this This is a short one Stephen King on the inspiration behind End of Watch I loved End of Watch And it was the third in a trilogy Sorry, that's my making noise back here. Apologies with my microphone. Um, it's a third in a trilogy. So it started with Mr. Mercedes and then it was Finders Keepers and then End of Watch. Now, I read Finders Keepers first because I didn't know about Mr. Mercedes. And even reading the book in the middle, I was still, I loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Uh, so End of Watch was the last one of, uh, it's a trilogy and the characters, uh, he has a detective character. It's really great. We're going to listen to Stephen King a little bit here. Altacast, here on MutinyRadio.fm. When it comes to the art of storytelling, few can do it better than Stephen King. His success began in 1974 with Carrie, and he has written more than 50 books, selling more than 350 million copies. For over 40 years, filmmakers have turned to King's library for inspiration. King's classics include thrillers like The Shining and Miser, but he is also the man behind The Shawshank Redemption and Stand By Me. End of Watch is the final part of his best-selling trilogy that started with Mr. Mercedes. The book is published by Scribner, an imprint of Simon & Schuster, a division of CBS. 
First on CBS This Morning, we're pleased to welcome Stephen King back to Studio 57. Are you having a good time this morning? Yeah. Yes, yes, I am having a good time. I met all my idols. I met Bob Schieffer. <laughs> terrific. James Corden. James, James Corden. Corden. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gail King. And then your family. You're, you're family, so also you already know each other. Also Uncle Stevie at our Girl house. Donald, yeah, that's right. <laughs> this is what USA Today says of your new novel. Yeah. Stephen King has a stored and sinister history of turning out beloved things against us from cars to dogs and <laughs> gaming devices. So what about End of Watch? Yeah. Well, End of Watch is the third book in a trilogy that started with Mr. Mercedes and Finders Keepers, and we were talking a little bit about McDonald's at the beginning of the thing, and I was coming up to <laughs> South Carolina, and I saw a story on the news, local news, about a woman who had run her car into a line of job seekers at a McDonald's. This was at the height of the uh, uh, recession in 2008. Yeah, and, job and her boyfriend, uh, her boyfriend's girlfriend was in the line, and so she went after him, and I thought, there's something here that I really want to write about. So. And how, These much, three books. Yes. and how much of your writing draws from some moment like that? Almost all of it. Yeah. I'll see something and then I'll think, uh, well, what if you added one other element? And if the other element isn't there, you're stuck. Maybe it just goes to the, you know, the back file in your mind, but sometimes you'll think of something else. Well, what did but you I'm, see that got us Cujo? <laughs> uh, where was that? I had a motorcycle, and I, it wasn't running right, and I took it up to this guy's farm because he repaired small engines, and the motorcycle died in his dooryard, and this St. Bernard came out, wow. this huge St. Bernard. And uh, wow. the guy came out, and the St. Bernard, like that. I mean, a huge dog. And the farmer said, uh, don't worry about Rusty. He's very friendly. And Rusty <laughs> went for me, and the guy had an adjustable wrench, and he whopped it down on the dog's hindquarters, and then he said to me, Rusty must not like your face. <laughs> I see. So, there I just was. thought you were a very strange guy and had a very strange mind. Thank you, Charlie. That's very kind of you to say that. He ain't the only one that thought that either, Stephen, just saying. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. No, I wonder, did you see anything today, you don't have to tell us now, that is going to lead to a story later from CBS This Morning. We would really like that, because we all want to live. But see, this is the thing. Oh, you all want to live. Well, of yes, course we all want to live. We all want to live. And yet, in a story, that might not be possible, Gail. <laughs> but, but and we don't want you sending us any heads in the mail. Yeah, but this is a crime fiction genre for you. Uh -huh. That's what I, you know, I think when people think about you, normally they think of horror mm -hmm. and scary stories, but this is crime fiction. What, what, what's attractive to you about that? Well, I've read suspense and mystery fiction my whole life. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't think that I could ever write an Agatha Christie type mystery mm -hmm. where all the pieces are in place and you discover in the final chapter who, who done it. Who done it yeah. But I like the Hitchcock idea. Hitchcock once said, the difference between uh, horror and suspense is horror is when a bomb goes off. Suspense is when you see the bomb under the table. and. The people are having a normal conversation and they don't know it's there and the time is ticking down. That's good. So, that is Stephen, isn't that? That's good. You know in, in End of Watch who the bad guy is. Yes. And if you've read the other two, you absolutely know who the bad guy is. Yeah, well, the, the, villain, guy, the yeah. villain is this psychopath, this um, Brady, Hart, yeah, Brady, Brady Hartsfield. Hartsfield. Yeah. But in the book, you also write, quote, he's living like Donald Trump. Right. Yeah. 
What's the comparison? <clears throat> well, the nurse who says that uh, says this guy killed all these people, and uh, he's supposedly in a vegetative state, and he's in the hospital, and he has a nice little roomette with a TV where he probably watches maybe the Today Show because he's the bad guy, okay? <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? So, Nicely done. Thank Nicely you. Done. Yes. Yep. So, and he gets and massages and meals a day. He does, yeah, and he gets, yeah. his, he gets the uh, mani-pedi and the whole deal. Yes. So he's the bad guy, and he's living like Donald Trump. But, you know, you've tweeted some very negative things about Donald Trump. Do you mm -hmm. worry about, for instance... Let's what, read what, what he yeah, tweeted, yeah. He said, where you said... Uh, you're, congrats, Republicans. You're about to nominate a thin-skinned racist with the temperament of a three-year-old. Mm -hmm. Do you ever get... He just even goes, yes, I did say that. <laughs> Do you ever get concerned about alienating your readers who are also supporters of Donald Trump? Well... Charlie I get, says no. I have to say, I have to say <laughs> what I feel. And yes. uh, I'm very concerned about this election because yeah. I'm an American. And, you know, I hate the idea when people come back and say, well, this celebrity said this or that celebrity said that. But at the bottom, we're all just Americans, and we vote, and we're citizens, and we talk about politics on Twitter the same way that anybody else does. I come from Maine. We have a, a governor who supports Donald Trump, and I've seen the results of that over the years. And uh, I'm just very concerned about the election. Yeah, so you're not speaking from celebrity novelist Stephen King. You're talking from Stephen King, I'm an American and I'm concerned. I'm speaking from my heart. I gotcha. <laughs> speaking I got from it. my heart, darling. I got it. <laughs> yeah. I totally understand what you're saying. Was Shawshank a departure for you? <laughs> well, I never think about, well, it's got to be this or it's, it's got to be that. I, there was a lady who walked up to me in the supermarket down in Florida where we spend winters, and she said, I know who you are. You're Stephen King, you write those horrible things, but I like uplifting things like that Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, I wrote that, and she said, no, you didn't. And that was it, so. That's great. Uh, have there been any books that have turned into movies that you thought, well, maybe that wasn't so good? Yeah. Like? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like? Sure. Oh, no. I, I, you know, my mother said, I like if you too. can't say something nice, don't say anything at all, so we won't talk about, about children okay, with I got it. or any of those things. I got it. Stephen great King, to have you here. always great to have you. Can I ask about you the bedtime stories you tell your children before you go? They're all grown up now, but I'm curious when they were little. What was a Stephen King bedtime story? I used to uh, tell them stories about Spider-Man and Batman and people like that, but stuff would always happen like they'd be allergic to bee stings or something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they weren't too awful. <laughs> On that note. We always like when you come, Stephen, really. I always like to we be like here. Yeah. when you come. But he's your uncle? Is that what you yes. said? Uncle yeah. Stephen King. Thank you for being here. I'll see you at dinner yeah. Sunday. Uncle Stevie. Uncle Stevie on CBS. Those bitches suck. They don't know. They don't read any of his stuff. If I could interview him, it would be a completely different interview. Oh, my God. I love Stephen King. I can't wait till I... Um, so once I finish reading every single one of his books by the end of December, that I'll do in an entire year because I'm an insane reader. Um, I'm going to write him a letter and tell him he should be a stand-up comedian because he... I laugh out loud so often reading his books on the bus or what have you, and I burst out just laughing. I fucking love the guy. Can't wait. I, I'll probably write the syllabus and then send it to him and be like, what do you think? 1992, when you came out with Gerald's Game, that was like the whole change in your voice, right? Because you used to do the stand and you used to do it and you had this really lengthy, needful things. It just goes on and on about character building and past and all this stuff. But 
Dolores, he got into this different mode of writing, right? In 92, first with Gerald's Game, and then it went to Dolores Claiborne, and it went to Misery. And it was more scene setting, boom. It was like they were a little bit shorter, and the storytelling was more TV in your head. Something happened with his style in 92 uh, with with Gerald's Game. And he, he switched. He had three switches basically because he started in the 70s and there was like the more the long walk kind of stuff the Richard Bachman kind of voice which also sort of is the George Stark kind of voice um, which is later in the dark half which is one of the anyway I know way too much about Stephen King but god I love this guy okay let's listen to one more um, this is another CBS this morning ugh yeah I and I didn't uh, this is him talking about a a good marriage, which I haven't seen, so I feel like I need to go. I feel like I need. I feel like I need to see it. <laughs> it's so nice of you to put on oh. pants today. I mean, you know, that's not everybody image, does. That's an image right? we'll try and keep in our exactly. Yeah. So when we look into the camera, we're going to see you in your underwear. Uh, sort of like romper room with the magic mirror. <laughs> yes. Okay, something really cool. Stephen King's missing a tooth, the one that I used to be missing that I got fixed. The first. Um, the first um, interview we listened to was from CBS in 2016. This one's from 2014. I wonder if he's gotten this tooth fixed. It's just funny to me because it's in the same place as the one that I had replaced. Yay. Stephen King, you're like, we're like the same. Got it. Got it. Thank you for watching. Uh, perhaps we'll give you some ideas for a futuristic novel. No, I'm just starstruck to be here. Tell us about this. I mean, Dennis Rader, mm -hmm. the guy who's this real life sort of BTK. He was the prototype for um, the guy in my in my story, and uh, he murdered ten people. Two of them were children, and he had a long marriage, two kids of his own. And his wife said after he was caught uh, that she she never knew, she never had a clue. So I did read this book, um, a, a Good Marriage, and it's a short story that's in one of his compendiums, and I just read it recently. So I think, is it in Full Dark No Stars? I think it's in Full Dark No Stars. It's really good. I had no idea that they made a movie about it. Okay, going on, Stephen King. Uh, what he was doing and this, this secret life that he had. And so I started to think, I wonder how many of us are sleeping with strangers mm. and what we really know about the people that we think we're close to. So this story it's, came out of it and, and I wanted we to follow do? it. What would yeah. we do, Stephen, if we found that they had really done something right. horrible? That's right. As scary as it was, it did make you think, how would I handle a situation mm -hmm. like that? I think I'd be calling 911. Yeah. <laughs> but for other people, it did. It made you think. Well, part of the th thing with... Uh, uh, Joan Allen's character, Darcy, is there are two kids. Uh, one of them is about to get married, yes. and the other one has just started in business, and she's thinking, if this comes out right now, my kids' lives are going to be ruined. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, this is the first time you've written a screenplay in 25 years, is that right? It's been a long time. I did a screenplay for uh, a movie called Pet Cemetery. Mm -hmm. uh, we scared a few people with that. Like, yes. hey. Wait, you know, this is, I think, because you are so charming and interesting and Apparently, seem normal in person. What draws There's nothing you? creepy about you. There's nothing the creepy question. about you, and yet you write really creepy stories. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's a little bit like what we were talking about with a good marriage. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there are other people inside uh, that we don't always let out in public. Now, I sort of do that because I write the stories, but, you know, I had a very normal childhood. 
But of course, I'd say that, wouldn't I? Yes. <laughs> but is there someone creepy inside, Stephen? Yeah, I'd say there's somebody fairly creepy inside, but that's a harmless creepy person because it comes out in the stories. You know, I sometimes say to people, there are people who have complexes and fantasies and they go to a psychiatrist and they pay $50, yes. $70 an hour. I do the same thing and people pay me, so. But doesn't yeah. your reputation precede you when you go places? I mean, really, do they think that you're gonna be this dark kind of creepy guy when you're walking around yeah. town? Yeah. yeah, somebody this morning when I came in said, I thought you would be wearing black. <laughs> <laughs> but you did Shawshank Redemption. I did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. In fact, I was in a grocery store down in Florida, and I came around the corner of the island. There's this uh, elderly woman who was pushing her cart, and she looked at me and she said, "I know who you are. You write those scary things, and that may be okay for some people. I respect you, but I don't read things like that." And I said, "Well, ma'am, I, I wrote the Shawshank Redemption and Stand by Me," and she said, "No, you didn't." <laughs> And then walked away. And then walked right past me. So you get a reputation. You're yeah. right. You get a reputation. And in all fairness, Stand By Me as a book is pretty fucking creepy. And so is Shawshank Redemption. There's there's parts that are, you know, really scary. You don't know what's going to happen. It starts at the beginning with the, he watches his wife being murdered. That's pretty scary. And then he gets thrown in jail. That's pretty scary. And then he's forced by the warden to do all this stuff he doesn't want to do because of his tax background. That's not so scary. Uh, okay, going back, going back to this, to this thing here, Stephen King. I don't think he's creepy. Uh -huh. <laughs> to, to like creepy doesn't make you creepy. Yeah. That's right. That's well said. I'm going to put that in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> but what scares you? Does anybody ever walk up and go to you and stoop move? And try to scare you? Well, they do, but that doesn't really scare me. You know, on a, on a real-world level. <laughs> no, so, I'm case-hardened. So yes. what would really scare you? Yeah. Well, on a real-world level, uh, you know, I'm 67. I just had a birthday. And guys like me, guys who are actors, uh, writers, uh, sculptors, painters, we live by our wits, comedians. Mm -hmm. And I think that... What really scares me is, you know, starting to strip my gears a little bit, yeah. Alzheimer's, dementia, yeah. things like that. I, I hate the idea of that. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah so, me too. But, you know. Losing control. Losing but, control, but also, you know, like spiders, bats, things that get stuck <laughs> in your hair. Does, does that bother you? Yeah. yeah. Spiders and bats, yeah, me too. Yeah. You know, there's a story about when you were hit by the van or a car um, years ago, and you are okay, we know that. Is it true that you actually bought that vehicle? and beat it up with a hammer? <laughs> no, my wife bought it. Uh, and the reason she bought it was she was afraid somebody would put it for sale on eBay. Oh, okay. <laughs> so she had it put in a car crusher. It was a little tiny cube, I guess. Yeah. Okay, you, okay. You were a high school teacher, right? And mm -hmm. then you wrote oh. Carrie back in 1974, and it almost wasn't published. Yeah. Until, I, was, you know. I was in high school, uh, teaching high school, yeah. uh, when I wrote the book. and. Uh, I had, had no idea it was going to be published. We had no phone in the house at that time because mm -hmm. we had two kids and all the money had to go for them. But it was your and wife, right? Yeah, uh, my wife fished it out of the, the, the trash. I wrote about Smart four girl. pages. It started in a girl's locker room and I said, I don't know anything about this. And she said, I will help you. Oh. She was a little amused, I think, by the whole idea. We've been teasing you all morning about not liking Halloween. Is that no. true? I'm sort of the Halloween Grinch. How can that be, given what because, you do? Because, uh, you know, it's just like 
you get the scary reputation and you're sort of like the Santa Claus of Halloween. <laughs> and uh, we used to open the house and trillions of kids would come and <laughs> finally my wife said, no, no more. Let's just turn off turn the off lights, the lights. Yeah. cower in the basement. Uh, you almost died. You're in a good, good place now. I'm in a good place, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I did almost die, and I got smashed up pretty, pretty well. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you ever completely mm -hmm. recover from that, but the body's amazing, and I'm mostly okay. Yeah. Good to see well, you. You're the, the first person we've ever had Twinkies in the green room for. I hope yeah. you appreciate the presentation. We yeah. worked hard. It was like totally great to walk in and see Twinkies. <laughs> <laughs> Just for you, Stephen King. S such a pleasure. Yes. Such a pleasure to Thank have you, you here. For Stephen me too. King. Yeah. We feel 350 same. million books sold or something like that. I mean, Sometimes stupid. I feel like that's my age. Yeah, it's <laughs> incredible. No, it's incredible. All right. A Good Marriage opens October 3rd. A Good Marriage, October 3rd. I had no idea. I have to see that now. I had no idea that he... Uh, I mean, I knew he wrote A Good Marriage, but I didn't know that it became a movie. So uh, after he got smashed by a car, he wrote a really great novel in the early thousands. I think it might have been in 2006 or 2007 called Duma Key. Oh, boy, is it great. It's a really good one about a guy who has, like, a debilitating injury and comes back from it. He has a couple things after his 99 stuff where he, he has... OTs, op, uh, occupational therapists that come in and torture characters, as he says. They're torturing me! Torturing! I gotta say, guys, I love Stephen King. Uh, so yeah, a little Stephen King minute here on the AltaCast. Coming up next at 2 o'clock, it's Some Call Me Tim. People say, why? Why would you call it that? And it's from, uh, if you don't know, if you didn't watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail every day for 30 days in college, like I did, I was addicted to that movie. The beating of the cat and the, and the coconuts and what is the avid speed velocity of an unladen swallow staff can go be there? I don't know that. And then, okay, so Tim the Enchanter is one of the characters and uh, some call me too. And he, uh, the line is actually, there are some who call me Tim, but I call it some call me Tim because I play this game called Magic the Gathering and there's um, Tim, there's a sorcerer on a blue card and he dings you for one point and we'd be, we'd call him Tim and we'd call it Timming you for one. So anyways, also the third part of this co coincidental name is that Timothy Pizza is part of the podcast because he is known as Pervert Fervor and uh, he plays the ones and twos, the beepity boops and the boopity beeps and the moogs and the mo. I heard it, someone said, it's not called a moog, it's called a moog. And I'm like, fuck you, there's two O's in a row. It's called a moog, baby. I say moog. So if you guys want to look us up on Facebook, it's Some Call Me Tim, which is moog religion. Because the first half of the podcast is about talking about people's connection or disconnection with the divine. Today we'll be talking to Matthew Quirk. And the second half is Timothy playing awesome stuff. So we have upcoming guests. And if you'd like to be a guest, you just have to contact me on the internet and I'll set you up. Uh, this week we've got Matthew Quirk. Next week we have Jeremy Adkins. The 28th is Hunter Uniac. The 5th is Shelly Strabel. The 12th, J. Austin Graham. The 19th, True Dance. The 26th, Marvin N. Carlisle. And 11-2 is Adam Rubenfeld. Finally, we're getting a Jew in. I'm excited. All the way into November. But we're going to be um, booking people and talking about 
you know, religion. I was raised super Christian. Uh, I oftentimes just spout, uh, <laughs> I oftentimes just uh, spout Bible verses because it's fun. <laughs> just to freak people out. It is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It is an act of God, not by men so that no man can boast. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Not an act of God, the grace of God. Okay. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Jesus. So, but right now you guys are listening to the AltaCast here on Mutiny Radio. We talked about the Drug Policy Alliance. That was great today. Um, we also listened to a little bit of Stephen King. This is some good pop music. I was excited about that. We got some Call Me Tim coming up next. Don't forget this weekend, Speechless, a 24-hour improv marathon. It's going all the way through Comedy Day. I'm lucky enough that my show is at 9 a.m., so I'm going to be up super early. I'm going to go to my show at 9 a.m., and then I'm going to go to Comedy Day to help set up because I get to hang out at the Brainwash booth. Not that I'm a part of Brainwash, but I am a part of True Hustle, and they're a part of it, and they're going to let me pass out Mutiny Radio Flyers, which is great. Last year at Comedy Day, it was so hot that Anthony Medina and I built a Bedouin tent out of... um, Uh, what are they called? Tablecloths and tables. We used heavy things and we hung underneath there. And uh, how Creo, he had uh, the NFL sports ticket on his phone so that Jonathan Moore and how Creo and a couple other dudes could hang out in my Bedouin tent that I built with Anthony Medina and watch football. Now, I went out. uh, There's free beer for comedians because um, it's the only day in San Francisco that it's awesome to be a, a comedian. Free beer, free sandwiches. So... I wouldn't let myself drink another beer until I had passed out 50 flyers. So I would leave the Bedouin tent, I would run out into the crowd and I'd pass out 50 flyers and then I would come back and I would drink another beer. And I did that like six times. (laughs) So I passed out 300 flyers because Mutiny Radio can't stop, won't stop. You know what, so what, we're not a part of Comedy Day. So what, no one recognizes Mutiny Radio as a legitimate comedy venue that it is running two open mics a week and then Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse and then we rent on the weekends too. But it's okay. I'm not a legitimate venue. I am. It's true. Matthew Quirk is here for the two o'clock interview. Super stoked on Some Call Me YouTube. He did not bring his roller skates. I thought that he might be part of the church of roller skating. He is. He is a part of that. We're going to talk about that in the next hour. I actually took a child there two weekends ago for a birthday party to the uh, the church of roller skating or whatever it's called. Eight, church of Eight Wheels. Church of Eight Wheels. Church of Eight Wheels. And I, I brought a child there for a birthday party and I wanted to skate too. And she said, no, Nanny Pammy, you'll embarrass me. So she said, she sent me packing. And she's like, you need to be back at five o'clock to pick me up. And I was like, what am I going to do for two hours a block away from the hate? I'm going to go to the Knock Knock and get some beers. So I met uh, some really great regulars at the Knock Knock. And uh, there's a new, uh, one of my new favorite bartenders in the whole world. Her name is Janiel. Am I right? Yeah, Janiel. And she's like, you're already a regular. And I'm like, I'm so stoked. So now I have to go back on a Saturday and uh, drink with her at the bar. The Knock Knock is really rad. It's on Hate Street and it's really fun. And it looks like the underground lair of Alice in Wonderland if she got caught in the rabbit hole. It also reminds me of a coffee shop in Amsterdam called Dampring, 
which has the same kind of like underground awesome look, but they sell pot and not just alcohol, like <laughs> like what I was drinking, which is great. God, I, I love that. I love the alcohol. Good stuff. Uh, you guys are listening to the AltaCast. I'll say that again. I think that it's maybe time to just play some music until we get to some Call Me Tim, because I ain't got that much to say anymore except to remind you. Please, please, please go to Speechless this week. Speechless Marathon, 24 hours, 144 presentations, no sleep. Especially come to my Sleepless. Uh, I'm also with Clay Newman, Chris Knatzer, and Steve Poggi on... I could tell you who else, too. There's more people. It's uh, Sean McKenzie as well. It's uh, Sean McKenzie, Clay Newman, Christopher Knatzer, Ethan Albers, and myself are all performing at 9 a.m., so I'm very excited, and you really, 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 really should come see me do that. Because uh, the money all goes to the Make-A-Wish Foundation, because comedians care about children that are dying or whatever. Give those kitties wishes. If I had a dying wish, I would want to meet Stephen King, and I think it would be easy. I think it would be very easy. I think he would be definitely in to hanging out with me. Um, you know, in my death site or whatever it is, <laughs> in my deathbed. All right. Well, this has been this has been a fun altacast. You know what I'm gonna put? I'm thinking about putting in for us to listen to. I'm just gonna do um, I'm just gonna do a little bit more a, a Stephen King thing, and then it, it won't be all of it, but it'll it'll time out because I love this guy. I love him. He's one of my favorite people, and he's he's in my head so much now because I've been reading so many of his stories. It's really, really crazy um, how bizarre it is to be reading so much that it it bleeds into reality. Like I start having dreams about Stephen King books and all this kind of crazy stuff. Okay, so this has been the AltaCast. Hey, big apologies to everyone who was expecting LaToya, the Sheriff of Truth, win. She's not here today, but we are going to listen to Stephen King on Charlie Rose from 1993, which is actually right after he uh, wrote... A national treasurer of terror since the publication of his first book, Carrie, in 1974. Stephen King has written 27 novels that have sold 150 million copies worldwide and made him very rich. His work, including The Shining and Misery, has been adapted into 24 feature films and six television productions. His latest book, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, is a retrospective of King's phenomenal career, including many hard-to-find stories and several that are being published for the first time. We're very pleased to have him with us this time. Welcome. Thank you, Charlie. It's nice to be here. It is really good to have you here. We've wanted to do this for a while. Tell me, what what kind of books do you write? Well, if you ask the ordinary run-of-the-mill reader, if there is such a guy or such a gal, I guess that I write uh, horror novels. I think that what I actually write are suspense novels. What's the difference? I think that uh, the purpose of the horror novel is to sort of gross you out. My idea of it is, and I, I'm not averse to this, I will do this, it's part of the fun of it, is it's kind of, uh, at the, uh, it's a childish thing, the way the humor is. The two things are closely allied. They both elicit, when they work to their best, a, a vocal reaction from the audience. 
laughter if it's comedy and a a scream or a, a yell if it's if it's horror but it's they're both childish and uh, it's kind of like uh, when you're a kid and you're sitting at the dining room table and you want to get to your to your sister or your brother you kind of chew up your food and then ah you hang your <laughs> mouth open like that yes. that's horror suspense is a little more high class than that so maybe that's why my I mother used to say that was tasteless that's tasteless yeah that's right well my mother when i was a kid used to say stephen your taste is all in your mouth and that's true but it has made me relatively wealthy <laughs> yes it has not even relatively very uh, but i have a lot of relatives yeah. so do you know where it all comes from i mean it comes out of your imagination but why this for you? Why not uh, other kinds of novels? No, I don't know where it all comes from. And that's the, the literal, unvarnished truth. I don't know where it comes from anymore than I know where the color of my eyes comes from. Well, I, I can I tell you where know. that comes from. Well, all right, it, that comes, that's genetically right. inherited from your mother and your father. And my mother uh, used to enjoy writing and my father uh, wrote a lot of stories and, and uh, mailed them to the pulp magazines of the 40s and 50s like Argosy and that sort of thing and I guess some of them were pretty good but I've never seen any of them so I have a little of that uh, from my parents and my children have a little of it from me. You wanted to write from an early age. Yeah, yeah. it was what it was what there was for me. Um, I always did it, I always took great pleasure in it, I still take great pleasure in it. The actual act of composition for me the part that I don't like starts when you turn a manuscript in to the publisher. That's like you have your own private field that's full of snow yeah. in, the, in the backyard and nobody's tracked in it but you and you give it to them and then they open it to the public. You mean that whole creation is only yours and only you know those characters, uh -huh. your editor, but forget yeah. that. You are the only person who's lived with them, know them, know where they're going, what they think, how they conflict, right. what's going to happen to them. And I'm the only one that has an opinion on them. Uh, <laughs> and then an editor comes along and says, well, we'll change this and that. This new one, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, a lot of the stories go back half my lifetime, actually. And uh, so some of them were written by a very young man. And then the editor comes up and says, well, maybe if you change this or tweak that. And it's not that they're wrong. That's not what I'm saying. It's that you say, well, that was mine for a long time. Now, you come in here, and yeah. it's may maybe too. I'm, I'm from Maine. I'm a Yankee. Maybe that's a Yankee reaction. You know, leave my backyard alone. Do you create characters you like? Usually I do, but I don't always create characters that I like. Sometimes I create the, the same, the sort of characters that I'm, I'm afraid of. When I was a You're kid... You're afraid of? Yeah. When I was a kid, I, I, there was a guy who, maybe the first of the modern serial killers, he was a, a guy named Charlie Starkweather. Right. And uh, he, he was went a guy on, off the Texas uh, right, it, it, Tower. A little bandy. No, no, that's, oh, that's yeah. much later than right. this. Starkweather was in uh, Nebraska, right. okay. and uh, it was in the 50s. And I had a scrapbook. I cut out all these clippings of him, and my mother found this scrapbook. It was 57, so I would have been about 10 years old. And I think she decided right then and there that not all my wheels were on the road anymore. <laughs> Your said, elevator was not going said, to the said, top floor. She said, why, do you, why are you interested in this guy? And because I was only 10, and what articulation I had then went into the stories, and it really still does. I'm a much better writer than I am a talker. What I was not able to tell her was, there was one picture of this young man who killed these people, and what there was in his eyes was nothing at all. I mean, vacant rooms depopulated planets, there was nothing. And what I was not able to tell her was, 
I need to look out for this guy. I need to know everything about him so that if I ever meet him or anybody like him, I can go around. And in my fiction, when I've created characters like uh, John Rainbird in, in Firestarter or George Stark in The Dark Half, some of the real bad guys, I'm telling myself, reminding myself, look out for these guys. These guys are dangerous and they're really out there. But when you were, how old did you do this? This is when you I were nine. I was about ten. Yeah. Now, did you try to write anything then when you were nine and ten? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of it was the sort of stuff that uh, I write now. There were horror stories, fantasy stories. See, I grew up uh, on a diet of, um, let's say, the sort of comic books that kids weren't really supposed to read, like Tales from the Crypt and yeah. uh, The Vault of Horror and that sort of thing. Uh, one of the earliest stories that I remember my mother reading, my, my brother and I, was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So you see, I was, I was warped from an early age. But the idea that this sort of thing, you know, somebody will sort of yeah. want to discuss your books if you write what I write, and they'll sort of sidle up to you and say, by the way, what was your childhood like? <laughs> <laughs> of course they do. <laughs> but mine was perfectly normal as a as a you know a general case back to the question I ask about what, what kind of books do you write do you compare yourself with with no false modesty to anyone when you look back who would you like to be compared to where do you put your work generally once it's done and bound and in a book I put it on the shelf <laughs> and that. forget it and, or send and it go to Hollywood to the and say thing. send the check yeah <laughs> there are writers that I like yeah. there are writers that uh, that I admire tremendously, and there are writers who, uh, whose styles have helped me at various times that I've sort of taken into my own mix and tried to make a part of, of myself. Uh, I think that writers, when they're forming, are like what my mother always used to say, milk in the refrigerator takes the flavor of whatever's next to it. You know, So that as a kid, if I read a lot of H.P. Lovecraft, I'd write like Lovecraft. There are a couple of pastiches in the Nightmares and Dreamscapes, the new right. book. There's a Sherlock Holmes story right. that was written as part of a competition at a mystery weekend in Mohonk in upstate New York. And there's also a, uh, uh, a Chandler-esque uh, Philip right. Marlowe right. hard-boiled right. detective story because I, I admire that style tremendously. You know what I'm like? I, I don't necessarily want to be compared to anybody. No, but just tell me but, who, you know, because there are people, the reason I ask the question, there, there are many who say, and this is complimentary to you, look back years from now, we'll look back at what Stephen King was writing, mm -hmm. and we'll see you in a very different way as the audience who loves you so much and buys 150 million copies sees you. They may very well be yeah. responding to these sort of base emotions of a great story, first of all. I don't think that you would sell unless you tell a great story. I assume that you believe that as well. And hey, if they remember me at all, yeah. I mean, it, it's... Uh it's amazing when you think about it, the writers who come and enjoy tremendous popularity right. and sort of disappear so that you find their works on back shelves in, in uh, hotel suites or in, you know, bargain barns in, in New England. If, if, I, if I could write one book, let's say, in my genre that would be remembered the way that Dracula has right. been remembered. I love the idea of the novel Dracula because it's, it's shameless pulp fiction and it's, uh, it's melodramatic and it has a lot of uh, uh, things in it that, that critics c consider to be vices and yet it's, it's enjoyed its own life. It stood the test of time. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And do you believe yours will stand the test of time? 
Boy, I'd like to think so, and I think some of it has a chance because horror fiction as a general rule lives its own guerrilla life so that sometimes it's the kind of thing where one kid will tell another, have you read this? Yeah. You know, and they'll go and get it out of the library. And I think that some of that stuff does have a tendency to last. What, both on the superficial level, at the top level, not superficial, but at the very top, what is it that makes it so attractive so it sells so many copies? Yours and others, what is it about the whatever? You don't call it a What is it about Stephen King that makes his stuff be so awesome? Because he is! <laughs> he writes great stories. He's talking about nightmares and dreamscapes, and that is an excellent one. I read that a couple weeks ago. A bunch of short stories. Really go back and read it. Not my favorite of his. By the way, this is from 1993, Charlie Rose. So this was 23 years ago. Uh, but, ah, Stephen King. You stood the test of time. Look at this. 23 years later, and I'm reading everything he's ever written. Rad. And you keep writing new stuff, you crazy guy. Uh, everybody definitely go and read uh, the End of Watch series, some of his most recent stuff. So good, so fast, so awesome. Uh, let's listen to some more of this, and then we're going to be right back here on Mutiny Radio with Some Call Me Too. Ugh, I want to, once I'm done with this whole project, if I could get Stephen King on the phone and be like, hey man, give me an interview on Mutiny Radio. I can talk to you seriously about your work. Like, seriously. Really, I can. Horror, your work, horror. You don't call yourself a horror novelist for whatever reason. You but just said okay. suspense. But it's okay. I'm not yeah, suggesting you're putting I, it down. Right. You're not. But what is it that grabs an audience at the first level? Forbidden. Something forbidden. that's forbidden. So that you're saying to somebody, uh, come with me and I will say things to you that nobody else will say. And uh, I will show you things that nobody else that dares are so to horrible to imagine. Show to you, that's right. Um, and again, it shares the same attraction as comedy, which says the same thing. Uh, comedy uh, humor says uh, uh, comedy humor. <laughs> Get me out of here! I just wash my mouth and I can't do a thing <laughs> with it. But. Uh, a movie that's really funny, that really makes people laugh, is generally saying, I'm going to show you something that you haven't seen before. So that when Mel Brooks did Blazing Saddles yeah. back in 74 or whatever it was, and the cowboys eat beans and then sit around the fire right. and they start to fart. Right. Well, nobody had ever heard anybody actually fart in a yeah. movie, and we all fell on the floor laughing. You know, right. it made that movie. So it was something that had been previously forbidden. You know, we all know about it. We all know that people pass gas, but nobody had ever put it on the big screen before. And here, what are you doing that's forbidden? Well, for instance, in uh, Pet Cemetery, uh, what I said was, here's something that we don't talk about. People sometimes have kids who die. There are terrible things that happen, um, and sometimes a child will die young. And in Pet Cemetery, that happened, and I followed the family through the grieving process, and then the father goes out to the graveyard and digs his, his son up and tries to bring him back to life. And there's, that can't happen. That is a total make-believe thing, just in case any of your viewers out there thought that they could dig people up and bring them back to life. It doesn't work that way. But in fiction, sometimes it can. And the important part about it, you know, I, I like to say that fiction is a lie, but good fiction is the truth inside the lie. And the truth that any person who's ever lost a child knows is that 
you wish you could bring them back to life. Mm -hmm. And the story explores what might happen if something like that could could happen. So horror fiction, a lot of it to me is the lure of the forbidden. Of the forbidden. Now, at a yeah. deeper or additional level, is it also some sense of of dealing with your own fears? I think it is. I think that. By comparison, by what? Well, by comparison, saying uh, uh, as bad as things are, yeah. they're not this bad. There are two stories. As scared as you might be, this is the deepest and this darkest. This is the deepest, but on, on a level where I like to work now, because I've been here for a long time, I've yeah. done a lot of this stuff. I'm terrified of self-parody. I'm terrified of running out of ideas and just recycling the old yeah. stuff. The thing that interests me the most right now is the fact that sometimes things happen that are terrible and there doesn't seem to be any clear reason why. There are two stories in Nightmares and Dreamscapes. There's one called Rainy Season and there's another one called The Moving Finger. Right. Rainy Season is about these tourists who are just sort of besieged by killer toads. Right. And The Moving Finger is a story about a, an accountant from Queens who one night sees a finger poke out of the bathroom drain. Just just a finger and it keeps getting longer. And in neither case are these phenomena explained. Uh, one of the things that, particularly in Hollywood, uh, that filmmakers like you to do is to explain where these monsters came from or whatever the phenomena was. What started this, which is ridiculous Why would you they think want, about it. Go ahead. It is ridiculous yeah, to do well, that. Why would tell they want me to do that? It. Why would they want to do that? Because that ruins the mystery of the whole thing, does it not? That's right. And uh, the reason that uh, you're doing what you're doing instead of producing movies is because you're relatively <laughs> rational and can understand that. Well, let's get to that subject. I mean, what about the movies that have been made out of your novels? I mean, some of them, they forget whatever's in the, inside the book, and they take the title and they go off and make their movie. Mm -hmm. Now, that... You know, that's simply trying to make a few bucks. Yeah. But what about those that uh, are more true to what you have written? Well, Why do they fail? I don't mean fail in terms of, fail in terms of your liking them, mm -hmm. not in terms of an audience, not in terms of making money, but in terms of Stephen King saying, by God, they did a hell of a job. Well, one movie that departs considerably from the, from the book that's a failure is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Right. And I think that that one failed because... Uh, Kubrick was going to make the horror movie that was going to be the benchmark horror movie, the one by which other horror movies are judged. And he didn't really know the, the field, and he didn't take any time to educate himself in the field, so that I think that might be a failure of Ubris. And with the case of another movie like Firestarter, which was the book, literally, exactly, point to point, it is the book, I think it's a failure because it doesn't have the sparkle and the life of the novel. I've been waiting for this to happen to John Grisham, but there's only been Somebody one, come yeah. one film out. Grisham, uh, I love his stuff, and one of the reasons Why do that you I love his stuff? I love his stuff because we all have a little sensor inside our heads <laughs> yeah. that stands at the gate between what we really think and what we actually say or write down. And Grisham's is out on a permanent coffee break. Whatever comes into that guy's mind, boom, it's on the page. Yeah. And that's what makes him really work. He's really alive, and the books are really alive. They may be a little bit unbelievable in places, and they may be a little bit rough-edged in terms of style. But uh, The Firm worked really well. As a which, movie? As a movie. Yeah. And, but the first movie ever made from one of my books, Carrie, also yeah. really worked well. And another thing that they have in common is in both cases, the film departed significantly from the book. 
but still work. It'll be interesting to see how future films of his okay. work, whether or not they can catch. What mm. I'm trying to say to lead back to your question is the movie has to capture some of the spirit of the writer's heart and, and mind. And if it doesn't, generally speaking, what the reader went to the book and found and loved, the movie audience won't. How many screen? That's right. He, uh, it's so funny that he, he, he brings up The Shining because I've heard in so many interviews and read so many interviews by Stephen King that he hates the remake of The Sh He hates the movie The Shining, which I loved. I love the movie. I love the book. Also, uh, if you guys are looking to read something Stephen King asked right now, go read Dr. Sleep. It's the sequel to uh, The Shining in that uh, Danny, Danny, the Red Robin finger guy, comes back and he still has... Uh, the spark, he still has the shining, the shine, and uh, it's amazing. And Stephen King also brings like vampires into it, which is crazy awesome. So definitely go pick up Dr. Sleep. Go pick up anything by Stephen King if you haven't read that yet. And um, thanks for joining us here today on the AltaCast on Mutiny Radio. Coming up at 2 o'clock after a word from Mutiny Radio. We're going to have some call me too with special guest Matthew Quirk. So look forward to that. We'll see you guys next week. We won't see you. We'll hear you. You can call in 415-550-0511. Ask questions about whatever you want. And uh, we'll be back next week here on the AltaCast. Bye. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk, MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground Comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for mere fun every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen.
listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> Want to go to Burning Man, but you don't have the right goggles, costume, or attitude? Visit 20 Mission Hive at 2415 Mission Street between 20th and 21st in the heart of the Mission District. Easily accessible by BART, this collective of unique artists and vendors has eclectic handmade clothing, leatherwork, artisan jewelry, antiques, crystals, and there's even an amazing florist. Whisper pirate ship to your 20 Mission High vendor for a special 10% discount on the coolest, most original items in San Francisco. That's 20 Mission Hive with eight vendors and like them on Facebook at 20 Mission Hive. 20 Mission High for awesome events and updates. The dictionary definition of the adjective eclectic is selecting or choosing from various sources. When Bay Area musician J.D. Buell brings you Morning Train Wednesday 10 a.m. to noon on Mutiny Radio, that is exactly what he does. Select music from various sources to give you a unique listening experience. Rock, pop, jazz, bluegrass, gospel, funk, reggae, folk, blues, country and western, electronica, soul, disco, rhythm and blues, punk and post-punk come together with music from around the world with Buell's passionate and down-to-earth delivery. In an age of personal music delivery systems, J.D. Buell carries on the values of progressive FM radio when a listener could actually have a relationship with a programmer, someone who would create an eclectic musical environment wherein both listener and host find fulfillment. The Morning Train with J.D. Buell, Wednesday, 10 to noon on mutinyradio.fm. Freeform radio for free minds. and underground space for an event? Look no further than mutinyradio.fm. Our 30-seat flexible space can accommodate your acoustic band, birthday party, comedy show, dance party, karaoke super fun, theater event, fundraiser. If you think it, we can do it. You run the door in promotion, we run the sound, space, and podcast. Rentals available Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10 at Mutiny Radio FM's performance space at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission at 2781-2001. 